but I, I moved into an apartment. I had an alias false ID for two years and I lived as someone else. Um, I had a fake job. I had fake family. I had fake friends. I had a fake boyfriend. Um, and it was mostly just to um, get into a hate group. That's a hell of a walk-up song. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to our classmates who are joining us online. Welcome to the Old Grab Podcast. I'm Jamie Schleck. I'm joined by my co-host, Holly West. And tonight, we are interviewing our esteemed classmate, Karen Walsh, company G4 Go Guppies. Karen, how are you? You there? I am good. Yep. Thanks. Go Gups. Go Gups. Well, welcome. Welcome to the Old Grab Podcast. I'm glad that you're able to join us. And um, I'm psyched about tonight. I'm really excited about this, uh, this interview. And, um, you know, our new format, we play the whole walk-up song at the beginning on Facebook, but we're going to shorten it for the intro, which you'll hear on uh, whatever your podcast uh, listening uh, format that you, that you listen on. So why Black Betty? What's up with that song? Why, why is that your walk-up song? Uh, it's just, it, I, first of all, it's a great song, don't you think? But um, second of all, it's themed to cops. So I just thought it was appropriate. Cool, because you have spent a lion's share of your professional career as a professional law enforcement person, right? Yeah, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Well, first of all, how was your weekend? You guys have a good time? What's going on in your world right now? Uh, so for me, I am visiting my sister in Indiana, and I painted bedrooms for my niece and nephew all weekend, so you can see uh, my service continuing <laughs> to this day. <laughs> did you paint that in the back, that kind of beige, that beige paint? I did not. Okay. I did not. I just took it off of my hands mostly, but I, it was uh, dark blue. So um, I'm, I was all blue, both rooms, all blue. So. And Holly, and how about you? What, what did you do? This I, I got to watch two of my daughter's soccer games and they won. And then I got to watch the army men's lacrosse team on TV and they won. And then I watched the army, they beat Navy, watched the army men's ba baseball team play Navy three times on TV and they won all three times. They actually have beaten Navy five out of five this year, which is incredible. And then in person, I went to the army Navy women's lacrosse game yesterday and we won for the first time at home. We've only beat Navy twice since the team has been around, but a huge win and really, really cool because we had a plebe who scored, she set a program record, scored nine goals and three assists. And interestingly, she's not the best plebe on the team. We have this other girl who's phenomenal. And so they were double teaming that girl. And so then it, it left open this one plebe and she just took advantage of it, scored nine goals. So pretty cool, pretty cool. So it was a good weekend at, at West Point for all those wins over Navy. 
The Army beating Navy big time. Yeah. yeah. My nephew, my nephew is uh, at Navy. He plays lacrosse for Navy. So he's a first. Wow. Year, so it was tough, tough loss for him to lose the lose the Army in his first year. But yeah. Oh, wow. Well, Jeff Benny's son, Jeff Benny's son is the captain of the Army lacrosse team. So he was down there and Quinn unfortunately blew out his knee in February. Jeff and Amy have been living here for the last couple of months so that they could watch their one son play at army. And then they've got another son who plays at Loyola. And so Quinn wasn't able to play yesterday, but the neat thing was, is he um, was off crutches. So he actually carried the flag when the team came out of the locker room yesterday. So Jeff, Jeff was a pretty proud papa. Nice. That's cool. So Karen, welcome again to the old grab podcast. Have you listened to other podcasts before? I have. Yes. Um, so I now live in New York City and I run in Central Park. So I often take you all and our classmate into uh, the park and it makes everything go faster. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you find? Mem- which ones did you find memorable or anything like sticking in your mind is like something that you recently listened to or? Yeah. So you, when we did our prep call, you were like, you have to listen to the one of the, the four girls from F1. And I listened to that. I was like, I, I think I texted you guys both. I was like, that is so legit. Like yeah. everything, they were just playing off of each other and all these memories. And I was like, yep, that was true for me. Yep, that was true for me. Yep, that was true for me. So I I really, really liked that one. Um, I also really enjoyed Anthony Noto's um, only because I didn't realize how injured he was the entire time um, he was a cadet. And um, I went to a company after Anthony had left. Um, so it was interesting to me to hear his perspective on Twitter, um, you know, from, from, because we, we know each other, obviously uh, we weren't that tight as cadets, but we do know each other and um, we have an affinity for a lot of the same people, but it was just interesting to kind of hear why he went there and how he felt leaving. Because your role has been working at Twitter until very, very recently, right? I mean, you, you, you continue to be at Twitter now, right? Correct. Uh, as of three days ago, I am no longer employed at Twitter. So. Okay. Okay. So the transition, we, we will await uh, the new announcement, which will be coming soon. I think we can't talk about it, but um, that's right. But how long were you at Twitter for? Uh, three years, almost to the day. Yeah. Wow. Three years. And what was your, what was your role there? Uh, I was a crisis manager when I started at Twitter, um, mm-hmm. and that was kind of a play off of what I did when I finished in the FBI. And then um, as my role grew at Twitter during COVID, and there were a lot of geopolitical incidents that occurred around the world, um, so I my team grew and ultimately ended up as the director of resilience uh, for corporate security at Twitter, which was a really, really fun job. Um, it just expanded to, it was, I joke all the time. I was, my team was the all else of corporate security. So, um, travel, remote workforce, security, crisis management, business continuity, training, education, um, that kind of stuff. So really fun for me. That's right up my alley. So nope. I really was enjoyed that, like that your, job. Was that like your first job out of the FBI or had you done other yeah. like, work? It was your first job out of the FBI. So like, you're like going from like, Straight lace, you know, duty on our country, FBI to anything goes kind of Twitter thing, right? It's, you know, there's like they at Twitter, and I think. 
they do this for everybody, but I think they especially, you know, they put a special emphasis on it for those of us leaving the government. But, you know, when you serve in, you know, when you grow up at West Point and then you serve in the army, and then I had a small stint at Frito-Lay, but that's also kind of a paramilitary organization while I was waiting for my um, background to finish at the FBI. And then I did uh, 21 years in the FBI. All of those organizations were very hierarchical. Um, and going to the tech industry, Holly, I know you see this and we've talked about this over coffee just yeah. because it's so different. I mean, talk about a transition, but, um, you know, it's very egalitarian, you know, and I remember the first time I was in a meeting where we really had to come up with an idea of how, like, you know, I got there the day Twitter went home for COVID March 9th and of 2020 and, we had to come up with some really creative ideas on how we were going to get computers to people and get people to stay working and productive and paid. Um, and so we were working and I remember going to a meeting and saying, I have a few ideas and I put them out there. And then there was like the newest of the new per- people there. And I remember this woman said to me, I don't think any of those are very good ideas. And I have 12 others that are better. And she just proceeded to rip off 12 other ideas. And I was like, this would never happen in the FBI. But, um, you know, lo and behold, her ideas were way better than mine. So I do think like, like, there's she was, some... She was junior to you, basically, this person. And yeah. she comes off with like this. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it's very collaborative. Tech um, is very collaborative. They want everybody to kind of put their input in. I mean, identify who it's relevant, who the decision is relevant to, but... Um, they work off this very odd, but yep. but um, but wonderful and and uh, productive um, acronym called ADASIN, which is the um, the driver, the approver, the consulted, the informed, and the next steps. And so, if you have any part of that decision, you are a part of the DASIN. And if you need to provide your input, you are a consulted. And if you just need to know what the decision has been made, you're an informed. So it's, they've got a good, they, so I I should speak, Twitter 1.0 used that. And, you know, since Elon Musk took over, it's now, you know, they affectionately referred to as Twitter 2.0. But um, in, two, in Twitter 1.0, we used a Dacent and it was very collaborative. So it worked pretty well. I just had to get used to it. I just was yeah. not used, you know, Usually the special agent in charge walks into the room and says, this is what we're doing. And we're all like, yes, sir. And you got free meals. You know, <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of much different from the government. That's right? right. So that's right. So in the FBI, if I made an arrest, it was expected that I would offer that person water at least, if not food and all kinds of comforts. Right. Um, and in the FBI, you have to buy your own water to offer to your prisoner. I mean, Mm. there's not bottled water sitting around the FBI. So, you know, yeah, it was quite a difference for me to go into tech. Yeah. What was the bigger transition, do you think, going from FBI into tech or coming out of the Army into uh, transitioning out of the Army? Or how were those transitions similar or different that you can recall? Yeah, that's a a really good question. Um, I would say the transition into tech was the was a bigger uh, cavern to cross. Mm-hmm. Um, Holly, I'd be interested to know your answer to that. Well, I just had one. I did. I just had one transition from the army to. But did yeah. you think it was significant? Um, yes, for for uh, yes, 
Yes. Mm-hmm. I was just talking actually to the superintendent, General Gillen, Steve Gillen, the other day about that. He's like, what's been the hardest? And I said, well, the fact that I could spend money and no one, you know, there's this trust element that's just not there in the army. And it, and for good reason, because people have busted it. But the for me, the money was probably the biggest transition. Like, I, And even still, if I go and put something on my card, I kind of get these heart palpitations uh, that I don't have to. Yeah. And I would say that the same is true. Like because the government, because the army and the, and the bureau are both government agencies, you're really responsible for taxpayer money. Right. And you just have to be a good steward of taxpayer money, but that, that I think also blends to corporate America, right? You need to be a good steward of your stockholders, your shareholders money. And so, but it's just, it just feels a little different. I think, um, you know, when yeah. you go to the tech, um, or just even even corporate America, but that's for sure in the FBI. But I will tell you, like they when they told me I was going to go to an academy, because you know when you become an FBI agent, you go to the FBI academy, and I was like, oh crap, because <laughs> like I remember right, like all too well, especially at that point. I think I was twenty eight, and they were like, you're going to go to an academy, and so when I went to the academy, the FBI academy in Quantico. I was lining my shoes up under my bed. I had my books in height order. I was like, you know, all my hangers and everything were canted the right way. And uh, I remember one of the FBI guys came to me. He was like my FBI counselor. He came to me and he was like, yeah, you could lighten up a little bit. (laughs) It wasn't the same. They use the word academy, but it's not the same. Yeah. Right. Um, That's, that's really fascinating. I, you know, I, I have similar, maybe a little bit of even different, um, you know, journey. So I went from, I went into my own business. So it was my own money. Right. So that, that makes you even more like, sort of like, uh, tighter with the Benjamins, you know, so to speak. And, uh, but now in nonprofit, I think that I've been in for the last eight and a half years, you know, you realize, and this is donor money, right. The donors have entrusted you with this money. So the highest and best use of every next dollar has got to be about accomplishing the mission. And so, it is really tough to try to differentiate between like, is this a dollar? Is this a dollar that's being spent? Is this in the highest and best use of our mission? Or is this really just, you know, basically imp- uh, like a expense that's, um, you know, could otherwise be avoided. So always, always a test. So I haven't never really had those big boondoggle, boondoggle dollars that I could spend going to the Four Seasons in Santa Fe, you know, oh, yeah. like somebody that I know. Like Lake Como. <laughs> Yeah, no, I've I've had those boondoggles, and that's why I said it still doesn't feel quite right. Um, my my job, and that's why with Karen though, it is different. Um, the way they think about money and the reason why they spend money. So at Twitter, that's why I mentioned about the food. They have personal, she- not personal shelves, but they have chefs. So so they can go and get three meals a day. They can take it back, and obviously it's to get their people to work, but it's also to save them money, I think, to save the employees money. And at in my office, we have like the food that's in our office is just incredible. And so I don't have to spend money for lunch and for coffee and things like that. But then in the army, when you're not making as much, you do. So you just think of these little things that um, that they do that you're like, oh, that would be kind of nice if the army just said, you know what, we're just going to have coffee for people or water for people, you know, where they could get water. Um, yeah. So, the, have, so you ever, it is, have you ever flown on a private jet? Yes. 
for, no. for the army or for the or for uh I flew it on a, a private uh helicopter. I so I flew oh. with the superintendent on the helicopter, which was the private one, but then I did fly on one of the net jets. I flew out to Santa Fe on that. See, net, th those are so expensive. Like I I yeah. I uh, I have a friend who um he sold his business. He made a bunch of money, and uh, and he said, "I want to go. I want to buy a fractional share of a, of a NetJet. Why don't you come on a sales call with me?" Like, so I'm sitting. Go, I go out to the NetJet to get the whole sales pitch. It is crazy expensive. Like, it makes me no. I whatever. Like, if I want to upgrade to to business class, I have no guilt whatsoever with my own money, and not with a nonprofit with my own money because the differential is enormous. It's like it's it's so much money to fly those NetJets. It's it's like, yeah. it's like it's like $3,000 an hour or flight hour plus $16,000 a month plus a half a million dollars up front just to, to buy into it. And then you have one sixteenth of the aircraft. Right. So. It is, uh, I will tell you, there's such a difference though in flying and like your fatigue and the experience. So you literally show up and walk right on to the jet and then you can get up and walk around. You can lie down. You can get up and get your own snack if they have it or someone's kind of bringing them to you. The seats are bigger. You're playing, sitting across the table. We were playing cards. And so when I got off and then I was in my car leaving because they bring your car right up to, for you. I was in my car driving away from the airport less than five minutes after we landed. I mean, because the yeah, it, so that's incredible. The time you save, so you can see why people do it who who have the money. I mean, it's that luxury that if you have the money, you save a lot of time. You're able to do things. The internet was great on it. So yeah, I can see why people do it. I just it is very very expensive. Yeah, I mean, you start with the numbers on dollars per hour, dollars per minute. You have to be making a shit ton of money for that yeah. dollar. That that time savings really matter to you. So yeah. Um, so by the way, but this I, week, oh, good. Sorry. I just, I just think those are the, you know, for folks like us who are used to carrying our own bags and, um, you know, sitting in coach and, you know, buying water and that kind of stuff, like, it's such a, it's such a treat when it happens. And I think yeah. also, um, we tend to not take advantage of it because we know we're fine without it. Like I'm fine without all of that stuff. I don't even drink coffee. So like having a cappuccino machine at work doesn't mean anything to me. I don't even right. drink coffee. You know what I mean? So like, but having bottled water there is nice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Having, having, uh, having cold water coming out of your canteen, uh, while you're like with the rain coming down is, is a nice thing too. Like, you, you've all been through that. That's the thing. Like, right. No matter how bougie you might get at the end of the day, you know, we've all 100%. been like, through the, like a field, field exercise and, and, you know, have we had to dig, dig foxholes? That's the one, that's the equalizer. That's interesting about West Point is that it's an equalizer. You're, everybody's been through that same suck, you know? Yep. That's you right. You had the rain dripping down your back. So yeah. that when you get to go on the net jet, I'm like, you know what? At least I've had the experience of had the, having the rain drip down my back. Maybe the other people haven't. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, that's so true. I feel a little different when I'm on the net jets, knowing that I've had that experience. I mean, and that the God on it's true that my work, I say all the time, I'm glad I've had the experience that I've had because, you know, these people that I work with, they've never had it. 
Oh, yeah. you're so appreciative, right? Yeah. The guppies, yeah. the guppies, we were talking about doing a camping trip this fall. And um, it was funny. Delilah Wyman says, Hey, maybe we'll go camping in Colorado. And somebody was the first one to break the ice and was like, When you mean camping, you mean like a cabin, right? Like, like glamping. 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 <laughs> I have not, when Mark and I graduated from, after we graduated, Mark's like, oh, let's go. We got the Jeep. Let's drive across country. You know, and he bought a he bought a tent. And I'm like, no. I said, I've already done enough of that. And I know I've got a lot coming. I said, I'm not spending my time in a tent. And some people like that, but I was like, no, I will glamp. Yeah. I mean, we talk about the value of like the the just having it be such a great experience to hop on a jet. But I mean, sometimes I just think it's an amazing experience to have a nice soft bed. Like I, you know, like yeah, you just nice really, hotel. Yeah. you're right. Oh, yeah. It is the great equalizer. You just are so appreciative. You know what it's like to not have all those creature comforts. And it's, if you can just remind yourself of how great it is, you know, yep. or how bad it was, you'll know how great it is. There's a woman at my work who sits right by me and she complains about every once in a while, we'll get this smell in the bathroom. And she was just like, oh my God, you've got to go in there. This one, I like walked in there and I was just like, nope, not that bad. I do have to go to the bathroom. Guess I'm going to go. And she was like, how could you go in there? And I'm like, really? I was like, it's not that bad. She goes, well, you've just been around. And I was like, it's really not that bad. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, I think um, speaking of this kind of like, you know, bougie versus, you know, uh, uh, tough tough situation. I was at my daughter today who's about to go to West Point in, in a few weeks or a few, you know, two months. She had her um, fashion, show, her, like her all girls uh, Catholic school. They had their fashion show where they get all dressed up and they're like in their gowns and stuff. And I was like, you know, in two more months, you're going to be like, you know, getting up early and walking in the rains. And this is going to be quite a different experience for you. Yeah. Game over. But I think it's good though. It's going to create like like it creates this big equalizer. And the other thing too that I think about West Point Naval Academy, you know, even Air Force. Like the other thing that you get as a benefit is you will undoubtedly be leading people or working with people who come from lesser means than you for the most part, right? And you're going to learn like what it's like to live in America and come from all different corners of the world. And that, that's one thing that you don't get at some institutions. I mean, if you were to go to like wherever, Johns Hopkins or, you know, IVs or something, you could go right into some other workforce, like work at Twitter or wherever you work in Holly and never have to like work with like um, yep. people in, in tougher circumstances. So it, it gives us a level of empathy maybe that matters too. It makes us maybe potentially yeah. better as a, as a result. Yep. I also think it goes both ways too, right? Like I used to uh, work crimes against children. And so we would oftentimes do um, human trafficking and child sex trafficking. Oh and God. I would get face to face with these girls and, um, and sometimes boys, but mostly girls. And, you know, the, the only way to get any type of attention or respect from those types of victims who come from an environment that is just horrible um, is to say, I don't know what, what your home is like because my home had two loving parents in it and I was able to go to school without being harassed. And I was, you know, I was not, I didn't feel threatened at school. So you're gonna have to tell me what that feels like because wow. I don't know, but I can tell you that I have resources here 
And if you want them, I can help you with them. But I don't know what it's like, you know, because at some point, as hard as we have, you know, put ourselves through all of this stuff, I mean, there's folks who we just can't possibly know their lens. And so it's really, I think what it gave me was, was a lot of lenses, which is great. The army gave us a lot of lenses, but also the realization that no one person could ever have all the lenses. That is How long did you work in that area, Karen? Uh, about five years. Yeah. Oh. I think Sharon, Sharon DeCrane also worked in that area too. Did you guys overlap at all when you were working? Like she was working violent uh, crimes, sex crimes as well, I think, for a while. Right. Uh, we never did, which is funny, but um, <clears throat> a lot of times... So what, what usually happens is folks who volunteer to do those types of crimes against children, um, human trafficking, child sex trafficking, missing kids, those are, no one ever has to work those crimes. Um, you can volunteer to work them. And I remember telling my boss when I got the job, her name is Sue Ostrobinsky, I love her. And I said to her, I'm going to give this a, tr a shot, but if I start to have bad dreams, I might need to go somewhere else. Cause like, I'm just not sure. I'm, you know, I'm cut out for this. And she was like, totally fine. So is that why about, they, make, um, is that why they let people, it's only by volunteer, the people who do it? Correct. Wow. And then uh, for the violent crimes folks, they also do um, like a psych check. Like they just try and make sure that um, a psychologist keeps tabs on you, not to make sure you're crazy or not, because everybody has their own no. little baseline, you know, but they just want to make sure you're not changing. So yeah. if you start out, and your baseline is here, it needs to stay here. If your start out, your baseline is there, it needs to stay there. Um, if you start to change base, right, you start to change your answers, that's when we get concerned. Same with undercover work. Um, so, so yeah, so those folks um, go through psych evals to do the that work. And a lot of times what'll happen, the way I looked at it, the way everyone, and I worked in the Charlotte division when I did that kind of work. And um, a lot of the folks in Charlotte looked at it like, it's my turn. I'll hop in for five years or four or five yeah. years, maybe. And then I'm going to tag out when the the child, you know, I remember saying to my boss, Jason, when I left, I said, I feel like the kid who got me last night didn't get the, didn't get the agent that the kid three years ago got. Like, I'm just tired. I'm frustrated. Yeah. And I think I'm just a little worn out. So and I'm not saying right now, but in the next six months or so, I'm going to look to move squads if that's okay. And, you know, and then you just tag out, right? Hop in, do the best you can while you're yeah. in it, right? And then hop out, tag somebody else in. So there's very few people who do that stuff for an entire career. So SVU is in, she's been on for like 22 seasons. God bless <laughs> her though. She's got a lot of skills. Like somebody's consulting pretty well with yeah. that um, program. Um, she shows a lot of really good skills that we use in yeah. real life. Um, but yeah, that would be, I mean, even she, I think she's a captain now, right? Like even she has gone up from being the investigator to being the supervisor. So yeah, um, yeah. Right. it's just, it's just tough to do that. I can't imagine. Just, right. And that crime does not happen eight to five, right? Like that is a, that is a Friday night, Saturday night, yeah. Sunday night, thir the Thanksgiving night. Like it's, that is a. 24 seven, don't walk away from your phone kind of, kind of gig. And probably what you, and you see if anyone watched that show, I watch it, but it's, it's exactly what you've talked about, how she gets so involved in some of the cases. And you can see when she's got to go and talk to the psychologist because she can't, some of them are so bad. You can't break away. 
And I've heard that some of those are based off of true stories. Yeah. And, and we help each other, right? Like those of us, like I can remember one of my old boys, uh, John Lederhos, he said to me at one point, um, whatever you do, don't watch the video for like, cause we were looking through, I was, I had to review evidence that was going to the prosecutor. And I remember him saying to me on a particular case, he was like, whatever you do, don't watch a video. And I was like, okay. So I checked to make sure the date time stamp was right when it went to the prosecutor, but like we help, we help each other. Like we try to make sure that no one sees any, any trauma more than they need to. And that's common among law enforcement, because may I also be clear that the FBI does not work those, um, those cases in a vacuum. A lot of times those are state violations. Prostitution is a state violation. It's not a federal crime. So we must work those with our law enforcement partners on the state level um, and the local level. And that way we can make sure the right charges are assigned at the right levels. So those are almost always task force work, which is my favorite to work because I love working with folks from different agencies too. So including NCMEC and a lot of the NGOs that uh, the non-governmental organizations that help house victims and get them education and clothing and food and, you know, kind of help them after we've arrested the bad guy. And now we don't know what's, you know, like, I can't take her home with me. I don't know what's, you know, like, what am I going to do? And these NGOs help a lot with victims. Wow. I'm just in awe listening to this. Like, wow. I mean, I'm just, what, what you must have had to deal with and, and try to work through. And we didn't even get to your undercover work, which you want to get to as well. So like in a very generic term, but I'm just, I'm blown away. And, and like, and you're not the only one, right? We've got other classmates that have been doing this stuff. Like you, you're looking for the list. I think that the FBI might be the second highest, um, uh, like number of uh, classmates employed by XYZ entity, right? Other than the army. I, I think the FBI might, might be number two. So I will tell you, Holly, I'm here because I can't say no to you. And then um, have you ever tried to say no to this woman? Like it's entirely impossible. <laughs> um, and then- uh, secondly, uh, Jamie, I have this because uh, I can't say no to you. And I found Lance Ashworth is yeah. uh, one of our classmates. He was an A2 um, and yeah. he served his whole FBI career in the New York office. And I tried to, Lance, if you're listening, I tried to call you this week and they don't have a forwarding number for you at the Bureau. So you need to reach out for me. But um, but Lance, Lance, of all people in all classes and everywhere in the Bureau, Lance decided to make a, he calls it a drill problem. That's what it's listed at the top. And I printed this right before I retired. Now he tried to keep it updated once a year and he would ask everybody, if you know of a, of a West Point grad, put them on the list. And it's got the office they're currently serving in, the year they graduated West Point, the company and regiment that they graduated from at West Point. And then anything else like a maiden name or whatever. And I counted um, the one that I have was I think circa 2019. Um, and there's about 250 names on it. And 15 of them are class of 91. No, oh, that's what I would say. Wow. wow. So 250 that date all the way back to, we have somebody who is a um, 1979 grad serving mm-hmm. in the bureau so that must mm-hmm. be a professional staffer and then um all the way up to i forget um i think it was oh uh 2011 was the most i recent. think was the newest 
yeah, well, 2011. Jeff, I think Jeff Binney went in because of his dad. His dad was, I don't, I think his dad maybe was still in or maybe had just retired. His dad was class of 64. And I think his dad like had just retired when he went in. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, yeah there's I, a I, I have an uncle who's a career served a career in the FBI. It's like two uncles that I held in very high esteem. One was a West Point graduate and he was an army officer. The other one was an FBI agent. And I always considered like trying to go into the FBI and, but I got, I got sidetracked in business and during the hiring freeze of the FBI. And then I remember when I turned 35, that, that door like shutting, another door shutting in my you know possibilities, but um, you know, in another life, I might have considered trying to do it because I have such high regard for people like you and my uncle and others that serve like this. It's just incredible. That's very kind. I will say um, that doesn't surprise you. You'd have been a great agent, Jamie. All of our classmates would have been great agents for a lot of reasons. But, you know, we kind of talked about this a little bit when we were talking earlier this week. But, you know, as an FBI agent, first of all, you need to live your life in a way that is respectful and responsible. And, and you have to live your professional, like you have to behave yourself personally and professionally in a way that allows you to testify. It's part of your job. So this, you know, a cadet will not lie, cheat or steal follows well into the rest of your life. You know, the same way an army officer would, an FBI agent has to too. So it, it makes perfect sense to me. And I, I say all the time, I loved West Point, but I really felt like the Bureau was my calling um, because it, it, it blended with my personal ethic and moral code. Um, and it also allowed me to continue to serve. Now, granted, you know, it, it wasn't the military, but it was still serving our country. And, you know, for me, I was serving kids for a lot of my time. Yeah. Um, you know, and people take different, you know, I don't, I don't want to out anybody on what they work, but I mean, I can see names on this list that I know worked foreign counterintelligence for 20 years. So these are folks who were catching spies and laying traps to catch spies. Like that's, that's service. That is a, I mean, there are more than a handful of class of 91 folks on this list who would get zero recognition, would never be able to talk about what they did in the bureau at all. And and are absolute heroes for this nation, and they will be unsung forever. Right. So, thinking more about this violent crimes and sex crimes, what you're working on. I mean, like, is the great there's a there's a gradation of of I think um, uh, like uh, the the ugliness of it is like you know you on the one hand you've got like you know maybe sex trafficking and prostitution, which is horrible. But then you've got violence to children, which to me is a whole different level of horrible. And you mentioned like you were told by your your fellow agent, like, don't watch that video like this. Like, you don't need to see it. Just don't watch that video. Do you find yourself? I mean, I imagine like an oncologist or somebody that's like, like at some point you become callous to it. Like, did you find yourself becoming like callous to the to to the to the uh, to to the terribleness of it or or did how, how did you keep yourself from 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 getting sucked in too much by that? So I I think that's also such a good question. You're good at this, Jamie. Um, the the that you, there's a peer support, right? And and we we all sit together by violation for a reason, um, so that you know we don't um, 
like the kind of the ugly doesn't spill from one squad to the other if if you don't want it to. Um, but I had an amazing group. I mean, I will, the theme of, I hope everybody walks away from is this, is I get by with a little help from my friends and my family. And um, that is so true of working violent crimes against children. Missing kids was extraordinarily hard. Um, I had a team of folks that worked missing kids with me and we made ourselves like there's this one cat, Jim, who I just adore. He was our, he's like a team leader. He's a team leader for a missing kid deployment team. And every time we'd find a child, you know, with a happy ending or a not happy ending, every time we find a child, he would pull the team that was working those missing kids together and we would go somewhere private and we would sit down and we would just talk it out. And sometimes tears would flow and sometimes we just talk it out. Sometimes, you know, the child was gone before we even got the 911 call. There was nothing we could have done. Sometimes, you know, we had somebody was doing something really smart and lucky for us, we treated someone with kindness and they in exchange gave us information that helped us find a child. So like we would always share best practices and just kind of use each other to, to vent. Um, so I think each team kind of has their own way of doing things, but for me, a hundred percent, I just, I get by with a little help from my friends. Hmm. Are there any common characteristics that you've kind of, that have kind of bubbled up that you've either seen or maybe the FBI has probably um, identified this? Like, I think of like, uh, like where there's, where there's circumstances where there's a higher likelihood of something horrible happening. Like, like, are, are there telltale signs that you see or that, or maybe even like, things that we as like Jobo civilians should look out for, like in anything like that, like that, that you can share with us. Like to mean are there parents involved? Yeah. Okay. So um, I got you. So what I would say if I could draw with a broad brush would be that there's almost always, although not all the time, there's almost always um, some type of void in the child's life, whether it's a support system or whether it's um, an alert mechanism, you know, um, there's someone in the home that's not treating me with respect, but I can't tell the other parent about it because the other parent doesn't want to hear it. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, we, I remember we interviewed a, a pimp who um, oddly, I mean, this guy just won't go away. Like they ultimately put out a death threat for me and my team and but he, he would go into the mall and he would look a, a young girl right in the eyes and say, you're beautiful. And he's told us if she drops her eyes and says, no, I'm not. He's like, I got her. And if she looks me square in the eyes back and says, thanks, I move along because I know it's going to be harder to get her. Mm. So I think this lack of confidence, this lack of self, um, yeah, I think that's that's a um, a big indicator. Not always. We do have, you know, folks who, um, you know, it's very hard to to find a mold for every victim. But I think there is almost always a, a void of some type in this in this child's life. That if you go back and interview the child, they'll say, "I didn't feel like I had anybody at home." And and, and that doesn't necessarily mean there wasn't somebody at home. The child didn't feel like there was someone at home they could talk to or feel safe with. 
or mm. a school teacher or a priest or a, you know, volleyball coach, it's somebody. Um, so it's really important, even if you don't have kids to be around for other kids, you know, to, to always make kids who maybe look like they're, they've got something on their mind to know that you're a place they can go. It doesn't have to be a parent. It can be any adult that helps it's a kid. It, it's interesting you say that, Karen, because I used to say when I was at West Point as a faculty member, my Mark used to joke with me because I said I was the the keeper of lost souls because the number of cadets who would just kind of show up and they they would just kind of say, "Ma'am, I'm I'm in some trouble or something's happened or whatever," and they would just find their way to my office and sometimes they'd tell each other. Um, but again, they needed they needed someone to talk to, and I was always of the mindset that if someone needed to talk to, I'd you know I would push off meetings because I said if an 18, 19, 20 year old kid wants to come into a colonel's office and sit there and talk for an hour and a half, but to a 50 year old woman, that means they need to. And, and so I've done that, you know, so often, but I think you're right. Like with kids too, with young kids, it's, it's just so important just to make sure that they have someone and that you can do be that person. Yeah. So I'd like to maybe move off this subject, but stay within yeah. the confines of your FBI experience, because this is such a fascinating and rich conversation. And so you did this for a portion of your career, but another portion of your career, you did a bunch of other things, right? One of which was being undercover, working in some type of, I think we can say, um, domestic terrorism or, but, but it was like, we're not going to go into specifics of what group it was. And you got, you got to help me make sure that I'm in, in ensuring that I'm not giving away too much information because you were very guarded with me in our, in our pre-call, but you worked for a number of years as somebody other than Karen Walsh, right? Right. Yeah. So that's kind of a, that's a fun story. Like, I think I love that story for me um, because it was such a fun um, time of my life. I remember um, it was interesting to hear um, when, when the, the girls in your company were having the conversation and Sharon said, I did not find the FBI to be as tight as the army was and as supportive as the army was. Um, I would say the same, um, but the undercover community, that's another story. So the undercover community, um, I mean, if anyone ever stole my phone, they would, they would think I have the largest family because anyone who is an undercover, who is in my contacts list, um, under company, it says family because they were an undercover. So if you were an undercover, you were part of my family. And uh, while I had plenty of FBI agent friends who I considered to be very, very dear friends who weren't undercovers for 16 years, I worked as an undercover and in the FBI, that is generally a, it's an additional duty. So you work cases in during the day, and then you volunteer your time to go work undercovers. Um, and so it's not all, you know, $500 bottles of wine and cruises, right? Sometimes you're out camping. I, I, you know, I've worked, I tended to work domestic terrorism. I tended to work hate crimes, um, the Klan, domestic terrorism, um, that kind of stuff. And so, you know, <laughs> nobody's popping $500 bottles of wine among those crowds. So right. um, I used to joke all the time, but I hit a whole lot of Waffle Houses over the years, but um, I loved working undercover. The people that I worked with are, like I said, family. Um, but for two years, uh, 20 months to be 
perfectly clear for 20 months between 05 and 06, um, I lived as someone else. I got rid of my apartment. I put my things in storage. Um, I told my family that I was going to be working a special assignment. Um, we had some ground rules about that assignment when I came home so that, you know, the kiddos didn't accidentally get themselves mixed up in any of my problems. And so, uh, this is just so fucking badass. I oh mean, I'm blown away by this, right? I mean, I, this is awesome. So now like, like, have you ever had like acting lessons? Like, like, how do you get into character for this? Like what, what's the, I mean, imagine because this person who you be, who you were probably had a whole different set of values, a whole different ex- backstory. Hold Like, how do you, how do you embody that persona? Yeah. So again, I get a buy with a little help from my friends, right? Um, I had folks who would help me with the mindset. I did a lot of reading. Um, I took a lot of cues from the folks around me. Um, uh, what is the, what is the cowboy lesson? Um, uh, shut up a little, shut up a little more or whatever that was. What was that cowboy lesson? I can't remember, but um, I just listened, you know, um, and I went in as a, I'm not exactly sure what this program is, but if you teach me, um, it sounds like something I'm interested in. And so I was able to, my case agent was obviously very, very smart on these folks. I had a contact agent, Mark, he was amazing. And he would give me tips and tricks. And, you know, of course I didn't start off doing that. Right. I, I, graduating the undercover school is, is an amazing experience. Well, so that's a school. You go to school and how learn the, the FBI has a school about, it. is that Correct. a school in Monaco or is that like, is that part, that's part of the FBI, like ongoing training, I suppose, right? So a hundred years ago, when I went through undercover school, it was at Quantico, but um, oftentimes now it is not at Quantico. It's off in, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're in, you know, if you're in a hotel where they're doing it or in a, a facility where they're doing it, you'd never know. Um, right. And they train you for a couple of, of uh, weeks. And then um, then you graduate and you are very clear on the fact, and it's very much like the academy, right? They break you down into like, you don't know anything, you're an idiot, and you need to be cautious of, yeah. you know, everything you're saying and doing. And then they kind of build your skills up. And then when you graduate, they make it clear, like you are now able to, you know, serve a drink at a party or drive a real undercover where they're going. And so you start in very small roles and then you work your way up into larger roles. So about three or four years after I had been doing smaller roles, built gradually building up the roles, my roles, I went from you know, being a waitress to being a secretary, to being somebody's girlfriend, to buying a car, to, you know, showing up, you know, at a, at a clinic to be a patient and then not get procedures and, you know, and then ultimately worked my way into a full-time role. And then, um, you know, it, I started slow. I started slow and, and everyone around me, you know, it's not like the movies. It is, let me be clear. It is not like the movies. All oftentimes we're watching a movie or a TV show and I'll look at, if I'm with my parents, I'll look at my parents and I'll be like, it's not like that. <laughs> Cause my, I mean, my poor mother hasn't slept in like 30 years because of me. But oh, I, right. And, but, and um, you have nieces and nephews that are in your life. Right. And you're like the cool, badass aunt, right. They're, they're all thinking like you have like a secret wall that flips around and like opens up to like a, 
like a command center or something, right? That's what they're thinking. Yeah, that's so cool. Yep, that's, that's, yep. What uh, Mr. You Mrs. Smith came out. Or your, your family had to brief them, like, hey, listen, if Aunt Karen's at like a Walmart and somebody comes up to her, you cannot be there. You have to be like, in case, just in case it was, I mean, imagine where you were undercover was not anywhere close to where your family was, right? You guys weren't anywhere, like, but who knows? Like, somebody could really walk up to you and say, hey, you know, you know. That's right. That's right. We had a code. If um, if somebody walked up and said hi to me in a store, first of all, we didn't go out a lot. But if, if somebody came up to me and said hi to me in a store, if I didn't immediately introduce my niece and nephew to them, they were to go to the end of the aisle and just wait for me. So mm. it was tough, you know, like explaining that to a 14 year old and a 10 year old was like, you know, something I wouldn't wish on other people. I will also say, to be clear, I am very glad I did it, but I would never do it again. I mean, it no. literally was two years of my life that I just gave away to the government. You know, that's what I was going to say. You couldn't go and yeah, wow. Yeah, like and kind of increased pay is like, is it like combat pay or something? You can do some sort of like hardship pay? No, no. As a matter of fact, um, I <laughs> I lived as somebody else. You guys will love this this because I lived as somebody else for twenty months, and when I finished, they charged me AL to take vacation. I was like. Are you kidding me? But they did. They charged me AL. So at, at the end of this 20 month stint, do you just disappear for the for your old persona? Or did that like crash into like arrests and people going away? Like how did that so yeah, so to be clear too, they don't do a ton of deep covers. That's what they call it when you live as someone else full time. Um, we don't do that a lot anymore because it's really hard on people's social lives, especially if they're married, right, with kids and yeah. stuff. I was, yeah. I was, uh, you know, lucky, unlucky to to not be married. I don't have kids, and so for me, it was less of an issue. But um, it depends on what the circumstances are. For us, um, about a month after, I I kind of dropped off the radar, and a, less than a month after, we did a full blown search warrant of multiple sites um and the affidavit which the subjects get are privy to the affidavits once they're arrested and so once they were arrested the affidavit said you know uh under cover like, like, like in the sopranos like adriana's friend was the uh undercut yeah. like that's how it goes down right yeah. yeah and then the gig is up and then i had to testify in court in open court under my true name so, which the U.S. doesn't do that great with, like the Brits. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, they can testify under behind a sheet, you know, so nobody right. really ever knows their true name. These but... people, yeah. So, and and this is the issue why it's so sensitive, right? Because we can't make, because you know, these people know who you are and whatever. But wow, yeah, I, did I, you, when you did that, Karen, and this is kind of weird. I mean, did you did you meet anyone that you then were like, oh, I wish I. I could go back and be friends with them, you know, I mean, cause obviously you disappear, but then for two years, you obviously meet some people that you're kind of connected with. Yeah. And I, I would love to tell you, I <laughs> met someone personally, but that never happened. I, yeah. but I will tell you like the subjects, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with those subjects and I mean, you know, those, they, they, some of them made bad decisions and made poor choices, but they weren't bad people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I was at funerals, I was at birthday parties, I was, they brought me soup when I was sick. Um, wow. I mean, these are people that, you know, 
it was very difficult for me. This, this, this whole thing, like, I don't want you to think for a second that I'm some super slick Mrs. Jones, you know, I, I was, this was very challenging for me. And the, you know, we had, um, one of the subjects died by suicide after the undercover. And I remember relying on one of my mentors in, um, in the bureau when I called him and I said, you know, I feel awful because, you know, I feel like the undercover may have been a catalyst to this man's demise. And, um, I remember him saying to me, I'm glad you feel bad, not because it's your fault, but because the minute we stop feeling bad that someone's life has ended is the day we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. This is, this is an investigative technique. It is used only when other techniques are not possible. And we need to be, we need to hold that in esteem. We, we need to always honor that, that this is a massive invasion of someone's privacy. And it is a horrible way to break people's trust. But it is also sometimes the only way we can know about crimes that are being committed and that could hurt our people and our country and our security. And so it's an important technique, but it always needs to be, you know, performed by people who honor it and performed in a way that honors its parameters, if that makes sense. Wow. Karen, that's, it's, it's very admirable. I mean, what you just said is just, it makes you view it because you see it on TV and you view it in some way. Um, But I've never thought of it that way. So yeah, that's kudos to you for being able to do it. And then for for what you did for the country. Cause I, I know that it couldn't have been easy. Like I said, for two years, you know, you get, you can't just cut off your emotions and say, I could give a shit about these people that I'm spending two years with. And so, yeah, yeah, I know. That's right. But, you know, I think it's akin to deployments, right? Yeah. I mean, this is what we ask of our soldiers, right. To, to go and give of their lives and, and give their time. Like it's, it's, the, it's an FBI agent's deployment is essentially the way yeah. I looked at it. Amazing. How grateful, how grateful we are in, you know, for, for your, for your service and sacrifice that way. Incredible. Um, one, one last question on this topic, then I want to move to the typical arc of the podcast, but <laughs> so, do you have like an escape mechanism? Like, let's say you get found out or there's some kind of like, is there like a, a 911 number or like, like are you packing heat under the bed or something like, like what's your, what's your, What's your ripcord like? Like look like? Yet you're gonna laugh at this, but I had a um, I had a Louisville Slugger under the bed. So and you know I always have a bad attitude. So like between the two of those, uh, you know I I was pretty well armed. But um, I had a I'm not kidding you. I had one of those granny things that I have fallen and I can't get up, and it calls people automatically. All I had to do was hit the button, and it would call people automatically to say your undercover's in trouble. Wow! Wow! And where'd you keep it? Like, do you keep it like around your neck? Or do you keep it like? I kept it in the, in the apartment. Cause I know ne- I always tried to keep myself in public. So I didn't think anything would really happen to me in public. Um, mm-hmm. There were a few times it got a little hairy, but um, for the most part, I stayed in public. So I, and then in my home was really where I'm, I was more worried that someone would just show up and be mad. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason. I want to also just make a little a little digression here too, because people that may be listening to this podcast are saying like, I'm not worthy. I'll never go on a podcast because this this is such a badass 
story that Karen, like, listen, not everybody's got this kick-ass story like Karen has. We, 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 we can yeah. all just live our normal lives and that's okay. Right. But um, I'm just, I'm, I, I'm so fascinated by this. This is so incredible. So I, I feel there's, there's just a bunch of people as we transition that are saying they don't have access to the podcast right now. Online. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, th I think, um, I'm seeing that on, on the, on the Facebook too. So let me just see if I can reshare this and see if it's, if I can, uh, I strong armed the gups a little bit. I was like, Hey, yeah, I'm on at eight o'clock and my memory's not as good as it used to be. So if all y'all would hop on for and help me out a little bit, <laughs> exactly. just like from 87 to 91, I get by with a little help from my friends. I'm going to stop the live stream and then I'm going to restart it and then see if that, if that gets us going. Okay. Our, our, but we're still recording, so. Yeah, because I had mine on and then all of a sudden it's, it's gone off too. I don't know if it went off. Well, Karen, I'm glad you didn't go back and watch. Mark and I were the, like one of the first ones and I told Jamie, I said, I think we need to redo it. I think we've gotten better. <laughs> Mark, oh, I would love to. I would Mark love to hear another one. And it was a live, it was the first live video. And so Jamie, Jamie came to our garage and we did it, the three of us in the garage. And I said, it was kind of, we were just so tickled that we could put ourselves on live on Facebook live and do whatever. And I said, it was probably more like a, a Saturday night live skit than a podcast. No, I, I'll, so I don't have Facebook, so I can't see them, but I can right. hear them. And I got to tell you when you were like, get off Wi-Fi, we're trying to stream. Like I was, I was, you were hollering at the kids to get off. Yeah. I was giggling so hard. I was like, that is totally every, and even here today, my sister's upstairs and she's like, no devices, put them all away. And Karen <laughs> has to do something. So it's just, I love, I love that. But I also yeah. think, um, yeah, a redo would be fun, uh, just to talk about more stuff. Yeah, you know? well, it's been five years. Hard to believe I've been doing this. Uh, this has been going on for five years now, coming up on fifth year anniversary. So. Wow, good yeah. job, Jamie. Yeah, there's a lot of them. I, I got to tell, I don't run enough to get all to have all of them done yet, but um, <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> I did the same thing that you, though, Karen. I would during COVID, I would walk and I would listen, and I said I felt like I was walking with my friends. You know, I yeah. felt like afterwards, I was like, I just had a conversation with my friends. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's really amazing what some of our classmates have done. Oh my yeah. gosh. To your you point, too. I think that the technology has gotten a little bit better. So we don't have as many of these interruptions like we're having tonight, but this will all get captured on the zoom call. So I'll have the audio. So this will, this will all crunch down and I'll edit it a little bit into, uh, into something that can be listened to on, on the podcast platform. So so uh, if you're rejoining us, uh, we are just we just finished with the undercover story and the story of the FBI stuff, and you'll you'll catch this if you missed it, you'll catch it on the uh, on on Stitcher or whatever you're gonna listen to it. So I want to now, Karen, think about going turning the hands of time all the way back to 1987, 1986. Like, what made you want to go to West Point? Like, and does this connect to your FBI journey? Did you like Sharon DeCrane decide you always want to be an FBI agent? And, West Point was going to help you get there, or what? What interested you? How, how did you? How did you get to join us on July first, nineteen eighty-seven? I almost feel like my answer is not going to be good enough, but I will tell you that, unlike coming to West Point, where people are like my great, my great great grandfather, I'm the tenth generation, whatever. I have nobody 
no one ever mentioned, I had a swim coach in high school who was like, you know what, you know, you get pretty good grades and you're a pretty good, I was a diver. Um, so swimming and diving, I was a diver. And um, she was like, you should really consider an academy. And I remember going home and saying, Tracy thinks I should be a, go to an academy. And my dad was like, you're not going to like it there. <laughs> and I just was like, well, you know, what is this place? Like, I just, I'm, you know, I guess, I guess if I, if I can credit myself with one thing, it's recognizing an opportunity when someone suggests it. And so uh, I did the weekend overnight with a swimmer and the swimmers, all the women swimmers, I had really long hair at the time. And they were like, do not come here. You are going to get that hair all cut off. You're going to hate it. It's horrible. I slept on a cot in their room and they were like, don't come here. So when I went home, I told my parents, I don't think I'm going to go. And they were like, okay, let's look at some other colleges. But then do y'all remember that green postcard that came and you had to put your size, your size t-shirt and mail it mm -hmm. back. And that little green postcard sat on our kitchen table for a couple of weeks in, can I tell you in like May, I don't even know when the last cadet is allowed into the class, but it was because of that. I got it so late. And part of my decision-making was like, you're going to be the dumbest person who goes there. And like, you're going to like, this is like, this is going to be extra hard for you. A, even dad doesn't, my dad never said I couldn't do it. He just said, you're not going to like it there. And so, so I remember when I, when I finally mailed the postcard back that night at dinner, my parents were like, oh, the postcard's gone. And I was like, yeah, I mailed it back. And then everybody was like, well, what'd you decide? You know? And I was like, oh, I thought I'd give it a try. And much like, um, you know, I think it was Becky Canis who said, um, I just short-term goal my way through this thing. Like I'm going to make it past beast and then I'm going to make it past first semester and then I'm going to make it past plebe year and then I'm going to make it past yearling year. That was totally me. Um, so I, that's, it was very much luck and a similar story. I was getting out of the army. I was teaching ROTC at Syracuse and I recruited an FBI agent's son into the army and uh, to Syracuse. He was going to a community college. I got him a nursing scholarship and he went to Syracuse and his dad wanted to meet me and I was about to get out of the army. And he said, have you ever considered going to be in the FBI? And I was like, no, I don't even know what that would mean. And he was like, well, you can run and you can jump and you can shoot a gun and you can talk to people. I was like, I can do all those things. And he's like, that's what we need for FBI agents. So consider applying. Wow. So, yeah. So, you know, agent McCabe, if you're listening, call me because I owe you a beer. But he um, he got me to apply into the FBI. And then, of course, I go to Quantico and it's like my great grandfather was an FBI agent and I went to West Point so I could be an FBI agent. I mean, I'm so unworthy of Sharon. And I mean, I remember getting up in Quantico and I was like, there's been a horrible mistake, but I'm here now. So I'm just going to roll with it. <laughs> Were there any classmates in Quantico with you going through the academy? When you no. Okay. What no. year was that you're doing it? What year did uh, I went through Quantico in 98. Okay. So that How was many classes do they have a year? So at the time they had it one a month. So, so the way the FBI works is they, so the way the FBI worked 20 years ago is they had about a class a month and then they would do hiring freezes. And sometimes when they'd lift the hiring freeze, they'd go every two weeks. So I came through when they were doing them every two weeks. 
Uh, so it was about 50 people every two weeks. Now they do, I think it's like one class a quarter, but they put 200 people through. So it's more like a larger class going through less frequently now. So, so let's go back to the Post Guard. Like, were, were, you the, were you the first in your family to go off to college? Uh, fifth, yep. Oh, yep. so you're, you're, how many kids in your family? Uh, so there's three, I'm one of three, but my father, my grandfather came over on the boat from Ireland in 1924. And my dad was the first one who went to college. My uncle was the second. My aunt got a nursing degree and I have an older cousin who graduated college and then me. Okay. But in terms of your, you know, like you have siblings, you have like, uh, like brothers and sisters. Okay. Right. Which, yep. So yeah, I was the only one. Yep. You're the oldest of your, of your, so that when that, when that, when that postcard came in, there had not been anybody else who went off to college before you, you were the first, first one, oh. first one out of the nest. I so say. no, I was the last one out of the nest, but like any good Irish American kid, they didn't make it all the way through. So <laughs> they, they, they were in college for four years, but they didn't necessarily graduate. But um, okay. I will say a plug to my sister. She, um, my sister is 56. Um, she just finished her bachelor's degree in January. So wow, I'm wildly cool. proud of her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She just went back to school and and did it during COVID. And I couldn't be more proud of her because I just think what a what an example that is for her children and for all mm-hmm. of us that you can be a lifelong learner, you know. Yep. Very cool. Yeah. So so you decide you go, take this like one step at a time, one step at a time. What was our day like for you? Give me your our day story, your beast walking in, your roommate. What was that like? Yeah. So Beast, like all of it's kind of a blur for me. I wish I had better memories, but I do remember Nikki Walls was my uh, roommate and she was, she was so calm. Like that, that woman had like an inner voice that was just so calming. And um, I just remember that the two of us, I mean, look, we had Cheryl, Cerna, Kathy Sutter, uh, me, Nikki. Um, You were supposed to have me. Do you remember that? Yes. My name was in G4. And, and then, then Fishburn didn't show up. So they were like, gosh, ah, must have gone fishing. I remember you telling me that when you first met me, you were like, Fishburn, you were supposed to be in my company. I know. I I I gotta tell you, so it was it was, you know, I I was okay with not having a lot of women, but it would have been a little nicer to have a few more, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 So, but Nikki, she, she helped me out a lot. Uh, the first day she, uh, left us after yearling year, she didn't come back cow year. Um, but she was really helpful to me that first. And I just remember, like, I was like, what the hell is a bag? And it was the BAG. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't even know what the hell a bag is. And she was like, no, 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 that's a BAG. It's a barracks arrangement guide. And I was like, oh, I get it. Right? So, then, you know, folks started coming in and being helpful, right? I remember Reggie Moore coming in, Matt Hubbard, like our, our, um, our, um, prepsters. prepsters. Yeah. We're coming around just helping everybody. I mean, the guppies, I mean, it, for those of you who don't know, the guppies were a lot of athlete, not a lot of academic. And, um, they were also great teammates. Like that's, you know, these, these athletes really know how to be part of a team. And so, so that the guppies were always as, as, I mean, I'm sure there were days where I was like, I wish I could get somebody to help me with this. But for the most part, all I remember is that I always had help when I needed it. 
And you were on the dive team. So you were a core squad athlete as well? Yes. So you got the tables, the whole thing. Like right, right from Beast on, you were like um, doing the core squad athlete thing. That's right. Um, so swimming is a morning and afternoon practice sport. So it made morning chores a little difficult. But again, I get by with some help from my friends. Um, and the swim team was just great. Um, I mean, what, did you, what did you major in? I was uh, engineering management. I also, for you, Jamie, pulled out my, what is this? Yeah. Your transcript? My transcript, yeah. Uh, look at you. Because mm-hmm. I know Brian Melton's going to listen to this, and I want mm-hmm. him to know that EM301 and EM364A, I got Bs in both of those classes, thanks to him. So here's my nod to Brian Melton. In fairness, I earned it because I had to go to his room to do every single project in those classes because he was on room confinement the entire semester. I recently, I recently had my resume or my transcript as well for whatever reason. My son, who's at William and Mary, studying computer science and like we're comparing classes, and because I was a computer science major, and they're like, "Dad, like, you kind of suck at Westmont. Like, you didn't." Like you didn't, I, I was not, I, I was, I graduated top 5% of the bottom third of our class. And I'm very proud of that. <laughs> and so the, um, but I, I got a C minus, a C minus in map reading, plebe year. I mean, they're like that. How freaking hard could that, I mean, how easy that class could be? Like, and you got a C minus in that. I was like, I don't know. It's just barely surviving. What can I tell you? Yeah. My, um, quick story about Brian Melton. So his son is a plebe and Brett Peckis' son is a plebe and they're on the sprint football team. So Mark had the sprint football team on Thursday to get a little tougher. They have to go into the ring, go into the boxing ring. And so it's the offense, defense by class. So Luke Melton paired up against uh, Luke Peckis. And so that was, so Mark's got the video of it and Lou Peck has beat Lou, uh, Luke Melton. So then he sent it to Brian and, and Brett and I said, maybe the two dads can can recreate that. But that's actually a very kind of cool 91 story. So now the, all that. So now the women now box, right? Yeah. I was asking my daughter about, cause my daughter's a, yeah. Like, so my daughter's they have, a beast. Yeah. My daughter was a beast in boxing. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, look, I mean, you, you, you know, you're punching the face, punching the body. What do you punch somebody in the chest? Punch a woman in the chest. That's not going to feel good. Like, like, do they have like protection on the on their? No, no. No, honestly, I think I'm still more worried about like you're not knocking anybody out out by hitting them in the chest. You're knocking them out with a headshot, right? And yeah. we boxed in. You have to box at the FBI Academy, no matter who you are, because they know they got to know you can take a hit mm-hmm. and give one. So. I'm glad that they did that. That was a good, yeah. that was a good move. Yeah, me too. Although I did like self-defense too. I hope they, they continue. I think that you were well. in my self-defense class too. That was yeah. a fascinating, the self-defense class, close quarters combat for the women. That was an interesting way for women to get to know each other at West Point among our right. like That was like the, the one spot where you were like all together as women, right? Like what was that like, that, that experience? I remember having um, Jen Eikhoff and Susie Chung were in my class too. And it was like, for, you know, you didn't know each other, but it was all the women. And Dr. Mr. Woods, he was our teacher. And he was, I mean, he was scary. He would tell us these stories. And Karen now, 
especially you can look look back at what he was telling us going oh yeah that was nothing or he was he was dead on but I remember when he told us if some guy comes at you to take your thumbs and put them in his eye socket and then you do the motorboat and pull out the eye and we were just like oh my gosh and then if you're wearing heels I remember him telling us if you're wearing heels you know if you're wearing those stilettos and a guy comes up to you take your heel and nail his foot you hit it right here and you can nail his foot in the ground. I was going, oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, it was like scary, but it was cool because then when we did our little, uh, the, the when it was pitch black in there and we would walk through the, the mats, that's when I remember Jen, and Jen, if you are listening, Jen was was really good at the class. And when he told us to yell, he would tell us to grunt. You know, if you hit, he'd be like, ugh. And so we were supposed to grunt to make a scene. And she really did. She scared me. She was like my partner. And she was grunting. I was like, oh my God, she's going to hurt me. Yeah. Listen, if I'm getting in a fight, I want Jen Eikhoff to be standing next to me. That's for sure. Yes. But yeah. That's anytime I will say this. I think it's true. I think it was true then. And I think it's true today. Anytime the class of 91 women get together, it's a good time. Um, and I don't mean like it's a, it's a fun time or whatever. I mean, it fills me up. Like, like I think about these women as, you know, it's so hard because you're, you're part of your company, you know, and you, you know, I'm a guppy and, and, you know, Kathy Sutter, she'd answer the phone. If I called her in the middle of the night, even today, she would answer the phone anytime, any day, but, but it's all the women who, you know, and I don't know. We still, every time we go to the reunion, we all do the reunion schedule. And then at the end, the last day, the last thing we do is we take a women's photo. And when we all get together, we're like, you know, we should get together at some point, like just the women. But we all want to, we all want to, you know, see our classmate, our company mates. Right. So it's just really hard, but I do like, it fills me up to see Colleen, Crisillo and, yeah. Uh, Chris Badavecchia and, you know, like all the, like, it's just, just, you know, God, I, Chris, this last reunion was stuck in her high heels. She's a general, I mean, yeah. like, it's just so fun to think of, you know, all these women who just, who just were always there for me. I, I didn't, didn't always call them. They didn't always call me, but I always knew they'd answer the phone right. if I did. You know, for me as a girl dad and a dad of a future cadet, who's a woman, I have a just a, a whole new level of respect for my classmates who are women. Um, and I'd like, my daughter stands on your shoulders and it's just amazing. And I, I feel like the certain, even important more allegiance, I think, to, to, to the women of our class. And, um, and so uh, I was actually just recently with, I was with Kenny Mintz and uh, Vonette uh, Monteith, Vonette Couch Monteith this past week and Vonette's um, and her restaurant were talking and uh, it was just magnificent talking to her. By the way, I need to give a little plug here because I said I would. Yeah. Empire Square. She owns this restaurant called Empire Square. It is freaking awesome. Empire Square buttery waffles. It's a breakfast game changer. Perfectly crisp exterior, fluffy interior. It's ultimate indulgence. Trust me, you won't resist this mouthwatering aroma of this delicious treat. Empire Square, you got to go there. She owns this restaurant. It's in Watertown, New York. It's tremendous. Um, but we were talking, Kenny and and, uh, 
and Vanette and myself. And we're saying like on a scale from zero, like one to 10 in terms of men, right? If, if the one is like, you're outright trying to run a woman out, you're completely against like women being there. And 10 is you're an advocate, you're an ally, right? The best you could hope for, for you know, our 18 year old male classmates would be a five, which is like complete um, ignorance or ambivalence. Like just like, just trying, like we're all trying to survive. Like we didn't know enough to think about trying to be an advocate. We were like, like the best you could do is just like, maybe they were gonna not be negative. They were just gonna be neutral. Right. That's that's who I think most all of our male classmates is the best you could do, I think, at the time. And um, Vonette said, like, um, she was having a conversation with um, CJ Luker. This is a main winner. And I said, you just got to know you can't be their friends. Like the best you the, the, the best you could be is just neutral. Like the, that, that's the best you could hope for is a male could be neutral. I think later in life, maybe some of us became a lot more. Uh, aware of that, like a lot more enlightened, I suppose. Like I, I feel like I maybe gone from a five to an eight or a nine. I, I hope, but I think it's 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 taken time, like for us to mature. I I think in general that may be true, but I got I had some eights in my life um, at the academy. Like I had some guppy eights. Um, you know, Tony Etnier is was then one of my besties and still is to this day. Um, I mean, I can remember Tony, when I became the first sergeant, our cow year, he was like, you've got this, this is, you earned this. This is not a token assignment. Like, don't listen to all these haters. Like if somebody's jealous or mad or, or whatever, like, and, and honestly, I didn't feel like there was a lot of hate coming my way. Again, most of the time I thought it was either supportive or ambivalent. And so yeah. I'm with you on, on that, but I, I do Reggie more. I remember Reggie, he always used to say, um, he was an XO when I was a CO and he'd always be like, Hey, CO, you know, like he just always like propped me up when I needed it. And if ever I had like a moment, um, I knew there were, I mean, gosh, and the list goes on and on Matt Hubbard, Dave, Dave Chambers, um, um, Dennis McKernan, you know, like Bob Minner, the, like there, there were always folks who, who had me, you know, yeah. I always felt like there were folks who had me if I needed it. Yeah. I felt the same way, I think. And, and you knew, you knew who they were, the ones that kind of go to, and I had a lot of fives, but I had a lot of eight nines. As well. And and I think it's hard to expect the average person. Okay. So let's, let's just rewind back to 90, like 90. It's hard to expect the average male cadet to be an eight for Karen Walsh, because not the, the average male cadet in 1990, maybe didn't know me, but the right. ones who did know me, I would, I would expect to perform at a five or higher, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Well, but yeah. So one of the things as, as I've, um, when I taught cadets, and then I got to study, you know, moral development, leader development in depth. And one of the things I always used to tell cadets, if you look at, there's a theory out there called Keegan's moral development and cadets come in and it's most 18 to 22 year olds. They're, they're only thinking about themselves. And at West Point, our goal is to get them from thinking about themselves coming out of high school to start to get into that level three, where they're starting to think about others. They understand that in their ecosystem, there are other people. 
some cadets come in, you know, some 18, 22 year olds come in and they understand that, but most don't because you think of high school, it is kind of all about you. Um, and then we get some who, by the time they graduate, they're at that level four where they're, they are now understanding there's not just people in the ecosystem, but there's this higher level of morality. Most cadets are not going to get there till after they graduate and it's like two, three, four years. And then Jamie, that gets to what you said. All of a sudden years later, you look back and you're like, wow, I have all this respect for the women. I had no idea what you guys went through. And it's not, it's not your fault at all because it's just who you are when you're 18 to 22 and where you are at your stage of development. So I think like for most of the women at West Point, it wasn't like we looked down on people going, shit, these guys have no idea what's going on. It's, you know, it's not that at all because we were the same way. We were like not even looking at you. We were just worried about getting through it um, and probably not looking out at each other as much either because, again, you're trying to get through it yourself and just moving up to saying, oh, maybe I should help some of the other women. Maybe I should reach out. But I just think it's natural. And now that we have age and especially if you if you have kids or you've seen nieces and nephews and things go through adolescence and high school age, all of a sudden you become very aware of what you were like as an 18 to 22 year old. And you're like, wow, I wish maybe I hadn't been like that. But I, I think I also most think people, I think that's why people are fives. That's a long way of saying why people are fives. No, I agree. And I think um, for me, I had a short list of folks who were under five and I just stayed as far away from them as I could. I think it also helps a lot that you have a, you've now over 20% women in the class. Like, like once yeah. you hit that magical level, you've got less of, less yep. of that. Yeah, Karen, we were, we were also talking, I mean, Jen Bodian's book is absolutely fantastic. People have to read it. It's called Whatever the Cost, especially for male cadets, male classmates. We should all read that book. It's, it's, it's tremendous. And, um, I, and, and I, 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 it opened my eyes to a lot of things. Um, it, like just re it reminded me of a lot, a lot of things that, that were challenges, but Karen, you and I were talking on the, on the podcast about the, st the stress culture around a uh, body composition, weight management, like that is very difficult for women going through the Academy. Like but back in the day, like, like trying to make weight, not get taped, all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm a curvy girl, right? Like I am, nobody's ever accused me of being skinny. And so it's just, you know, I was an athlete. I look back now at pictures of me at, at the Academy and I'm like, man, if I look like that now, I'd be doing this podcast in a string bikini. Like I can't even <laughs> imagine, you know, how I thought I was heavy at the time, but I was one of those girls who had to line up every, whatever it was, yep. month, quarter, whatever, every other month, whatever that was, and have the first sergeant bring out the measuring tape and tape my neck and my arms and my hips and the whole thing. And, and I mean, I was a diver. I, my body was on display for my core squad sport. Like it was just, and you know, what I was sharing earlier, Holly, I don't know if, if uh, Jamie shared it with you, but I have a friend now who is a nurse practitioner at Barnard and she, I was telling her about being at West Point and how we had the diet tables and how we got taped and how they're yelling they were, your weight down the hall. Yes. And like yes. all these things. And, and she said to me, I, these are, I'm amazed 
any of you graduated without an eating disorder. Like I am amazed yeah. at this. These are absolutely the things that cause eating disorders. And she was like, I hope they fixed this. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know what they you do know, now. But so just in the last month and a half, so 30 years later, the army has finally reached its senses after they came out with the new ACFT, which is the new army combat fitness test. And they've now said that if you score over, I think it's 540, because it's it's six events that where you can score up to 100. So if you score over 540, you no longer have to get taped. Okay. So, so you can carry body fat as long as you can perform. Is, it, so standard. it's all about performance, which is how yeah. it always should have been. You know, if yeah. you could, whatever the fitness test is, if you could do pass that, then, then so be it. Um, so I think that's, I'm on a, a, a for a army combat fitness test for women page. And it, you should have seen that. It's really, really sad when I, when I went on it, when they first came out and to see the eating disorders that were on there and the stress for the women, just the fact that there were 35,000 women on this Facebook page and on the one kind of for the army, the men, there was 150 people. Mm. And I was like, really? Does that not, is that not an indicator? Anyway, so yeah, body image. So there's General LaBeouf, Maureen LaBeouf. She was the first woman master of the sword. Yep. And she undertook a big uh, study across the Corps of Cadets around this. Um, it was uh, exercise, exercise-induced bulimia. It was, was what it was. What, the idea that people would eat and then they would work out to like work off what they ate. That the women yeah. were like, and so she had this big study that was uh, um, uh, undertaken. So, I mean, of course, as a dad of a young lady who's going to go to West Point, this is, you know, something that I, 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 um, I'm concerned about, making sure that, you know, she yeah. has. But, you know, I, I imagine, you know, and, and reading Jen Bodian's book, a lot of that focus was on her own pressure around that. And yeah. it really is an eye-opener, the challenges that we have for, uh, for young ladies who are going to, uh, going to West Point. Yeah, you know, Jamie, we were talking about Janet. Um, and one of my fondest memories of Janet was that I always knew when I'd hit the sauna the night before weigh-in, because I always went to the sauna the night before weigh-in to sweat out whatever I could, um, that Janet Greco would be there with me. That that mm. it would at least be the two of us, if not 20 more other girls. But um, you know, she she and I were because I guess, because we were fourth reg, we always just, you know, hit it at the same time uh, for our schedules. But um, yeah, that was one of my, you know, it, it's terrible to think that that's a fond memory, but I always knew I'd have quality time with her. Like I always knew we'd be talking it out and it made whatever sweating time we had to do uh, go faster. She was so great. She was in my Buckner um, platoon. What a wonderful lady. We, you know, they lived through our stories, our fallen classmates. Mm -hmm. So. You, um, you, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, Reggie Moore, he was your classmate, he's your company mate, yeah. Reggie. You have a story about him and Donna and how they have to try to navigate their own tendencies with West Point and designing their, their bathroom, right? So tell me that story. Yep, so Donna and Reg don't be mad at me, but um, at the last reunion, they were talking about redoing their bathroom. And I just thought, I just think the story is hilarious that because I still line up my shoes in height order or, or like the toes to each other in the closet. And I still put my books in height order and I still, my t-shirts still fold themselves into perfect squares. It's just, it's just stuck with me. 
So Reggie, evidently the fold, you know how we would fold everything, towels, the, our green girls, everything. You had to have the New York times, right? You had to have the biggest fold facing out. Mm -hmm. So uh, evidently Reggie's been holding this in for years with Donna. And uh, he was like, you just folding the towels wrong. You're folding the towels wrong. And Donna's like, we have two kids. We're trying to raise a family. Like, what's the problem? And he was like, when I walk in the bathroom, I want to see the fold. Like, I want to see the big fold facing me and you fold it the other way. And then I see the raw edges facing me. And Donna was like, have you been holding on to this for 30 years? Like, have you seriously been holding on to this? So anyway, when they redid their bathroom, they redid it so that Donna's normal actions would allow the fold to be facing out. So I nice. think that is um, maybe one of the best, like yeah. I can't let it go stories. Yep. Yeah. And and I forgot to tell you too, I just got a pic of Mike Palazza from his wife, Lou, and he was wearing his um, cadet bathrobe. So he's Very still cool. tooling around the house in his cadet bathrobe. I got mine around here too. Because we're, my daughter had to dress up like an old lady for senior day at school and she was wearing a cadet bathrobe or she was considering wearing a cadet bathrobe. So, um, oh. and any other notable classmates, notable guppies, you, you mentioned, uh, uh, a couple things with uh, you, so you guys some, had a great company, yeah. G4, we did. I was yeah. so lucky. Uh, yeah, we have a lot of uh folks who kind of made it to the end of military retirement Wayne Brewster, um, Mike Palazza, Vinny Torza. Um, we have uh, uh, Mike Papura, who has been White yeah. House counsel and consult um, advisor to two U.S. presidents. Yeah. Uh, Tony Etnier, who kind of uh, broke away from Motorola and ran his own company. Um, Sam Bob Minner had returned home and um, works in his hometown as a as a corporate executive. Um, and he had so, a son. Oh, both, he had a son at West Point. A daughter. daughter. A daughter. Yeah. Sorry. A daughter. Yeah. Yep. She's off to med school. She's she's I just texted him the other day. He said she's doing great. Yeah, oh, yeah. She's, like she was when I met her and. And she was like, oh, I'm going to med school. And I'm like, where isn't she at like Stanford or Harvard? Oh, Harvard. He texted, I, he, I can't remember where he told I me. I think she, yeah, she's at one of the big, the big med schools. And I was just like, oh my gosh. That young woman is very impressive. He, yes. he they did a very good job with, with yeah. her. She is, she is a very impressive he, young woman. He gives all the credit to his wife, by the way. Yeah. I, I as, as he probably should, but I'm just saying, you know, um, <laughs> Yeah. And Dave Chambers and Dave Keith Chambers. Brown. Mm -hmm. Keith, yep, yep. Dave and Keith. They they all Dave and Keith always roomed next to me. So um, you know, we do that. I Holly, were you the one talking about talking through the um yes, medicine cabinet? Yeah. yeah. That was Reggie and I and Dave would always be whispering through the, the medicine cabinets. Yep. You know, time to play Tetris, come on over, you know. Yeah. You guys used to have WrestleMania too. You said right in the in the bar. <laughs> yeah. The guppies, man. They're Nick Malden. Um, oh yeah, you would think. Oh my gosh, those folks. They would. There wasn't a time I would walk out the door and there was some sweaty mess going on in the hallway. They'd be scooting it, and then I'd be like, "Why don't we just give up?" And they'd be like, "No way. This has been going on for you know however many minutes, and you know it's going to go at least fifteen more." So they, there was, was always a wrestling match going on. I was flipping through our yearbook the other day and um, 
it in it. And I, it was like those things you get the memories I flashed through and it showed like the birthday party and it showed some guy in his gym alpha taped up to the uh, coat rack and people like, you know, had shaving cream and stuff. I'm like, Oh my God, I completely forgot about the birthday parties. <laughs> I wish I remembered more. It's just so funny. Yeah. And, and- the gummies we used, were we all used to put people on the on the rack, like on the on the on the bed rack. Take like the the top of the bed would come off of the posts, and you yeah rack them up to that, and then put them on a laundry um one of those laundry carts, and into the middle of the old South barracks, and then they and would push them out the windows at them. Yeah, that's. You know, I was listening. I was listening. This is so. I, I was. I don't know what made me think about this. I was listening to. I think it was. Um, uh, Luke Nittick was talking about, I think he had a, he had a prepster roommate. Prepsters are so, such an interesting crowd of prepsters, right? They're always like a little bit like, like just pushing the limit, like no yeah. big deal, you know? At, at Beast Barracks, I think it was Luke Kinetic and his roommate, who I can't remember who it was, um, they look out the window and there's construction going on in the back behind like, like Washington, like where the mess hall was. And so there was a gut truck like where the like guys would go get food. And so the this prepster says to one of the workers, hey, do me a favor. Can you go get us like some pizza and some sandwiches? And this is during Beast, right? They have this worker going there from the gut truck, handing them food through the window of their room. And like he's just like, oh, I guess I'll just eat this stuff. What like just go with whatever this guy's doing. So funny. Who were your prepsters at in uh in G4? Uh <clears throat> Dave and Reggie, mm-hmm. um, Matt Hubbard. Okay. Um, I think Nikki Walls was a prepster. I think that's why she was so calm on our day. Yeah. Um, I think that might be it. Such a fascinating group. Uh, how about um, Chris Hartley? Was he a prepster? Oh, no, I don't think. No, yeah. he wasn't. No. Was Jason? Wasn't Jason prior service? Jason Wyman. Wyman. Is no, I, don't think so. I, I thought he was. Maybe he wasn't. Um, boy, that guy's done enough service for two people. Yeah. He was ahead of a hospital or something, you said, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was one of my best friends was the um, head of the Red Cross at, um, where did I say it was? Um, Belvoir. And uh, she's like, yeah, Colonel Wyman runs the hospital. And I was like, Jason Wyman? And she's like, yeah, I'm like, that guy owes me money. Like, <laughs> we're going to have to all have steak dinner together or something. So we all met together and and um, hopefully uh, enhanced that relationship. But Mary Santini is another amazing human being that I met through the Army. Not Her husband is not a, um, a grad, but um, was in ROTC with me, served in, as the MS3 when I was the MS1 in Rue in ROTC. So Anyway, they he she served with Jason for a very long time. Jason's still on duty. He's down in I think um, Hood, and uh, he's I don't know like triple board certified surgeon whatever. Yeah. If you go to his house, he's gonna stick like acupuncture needles in you. Like he's he's just he's he plays the saxophone. Like that, that, there's nothing that guy can't do. It's amazing. They're they're all all those guppies are like you know like. I, I could talk, you could name any one of them and I could tell you just, you know, seven skills that I don't have that they do, you know? Yep. Amazing. So you walked a hundred hours, you said, right? Yeah. That's impressive. Although I want to, 
I do want to go on the record that some of those hours are absolutely BS. Like, so, so as a new cadet, I had, my father wrote me an, a letter and said, I put money in your account. I think it was Marine Midland Bank. Is that right? Is yeah. that when we were? Yeah, memory, yeah. Memory, yeah. So I went down to wherever we get books down by the, wherever that bookstore yeah, yeah. was down right by the by, field house. Yep. And I write a check and it, to, for plea books, right? I'm a new cadet and um, the check bounces. And so I get a letter from Marine Midland Bank that says this was entirely our fault. And, and, you know, we failed to update the balance. It was entirely our fault. I had a note, a, a note from the bank that said it was entirely. And uh, I got a second class board for that because I, the lesson was you should have checked the balance before you wrote the check. So wow. I got, so when we marched back from, from Lake Frederick, I was shining shoes to start walking the area the first Saturday. So oh, right, I walked, away. right away. Wow. I was a new cadet on the air. I'm telling you. So that was, so bam, 20 right in the, in the bank right there. And then, you know, over the years, I racked up a few here and there, mostly just for like oversleeping. Cause I'm like a world champ sleeper. And then my cow year. So I ultimately, when uh, I got engaged to and married a class of 90, uh, Brett Steele from I4. Um, so I think Alex Rogers is listening. That's Alex and I were swimmers together, but we also hung out a lot in I-4. And um, he, so I was in I-4 and remember when you became, so he was class of 90. So he was the first, even when I was cow and he, he had, remember you could, you know, as a first, you could have a carpet, right. And all the things that more than five knickknacks and you could also elevate your bed. Like you could leave yep. it a bunk bed with the high, with the posts. So it was a high okay. bed. Yeah. And I came into his room, door wide open, like five other cadets in the room. And I just like popped my hip on the foot of his bed. He was laying down. He was horizontal laying down with sat on the pillow. And I put my hip against the bed because it was high and at his foot. And one of his classmates wrote me up. And so well, I got 20 hours. Or not enough rock, but like a PDA. Being on the same bed, the same horizontal same surface. Piece of furniture. Yep. Same hours. Hopefully he kicked the shit out of that dude. <laughs> I'm sure something unkind occurred to that person, but yeah. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, I mean, both. So, four, so bam, wow. 40 hours, like right there. Like, wow. So it just, it didn't, it didn't take, it didn't take long. I, you know, with those two, Two big slugs, you know, and a couple of here and there. It wasn't too hard to get to 100. <laughs> Alex Rogers wants to say who, who wrote you up? Who? I don't remember, to be honest no. with you. I don't remember. Um, I and do see, remember I remember that... all the people who wrote me up, Karen. That's something that oh, I do <laughs> my grave with. I, I hold grudges. <laughs> I said it might have been 30, 30 years ago, but I said I hold grudges. <laughs> oh, that's just me trying to let it go, I guess. But. Yeah, I just remember thinking like I thought it for sure I would never make a century, and then at, when I got a huge slug as a cow, I was like, "All right, I guess this is you know what pushes okay. me over." That's impressive. I'm a century so, person too. We we have been talking for an hour and forty minutes, so like we're gonna start winding this down here. But so but we we have to we have to like fast forward here a little bit. So so you end up graduating graduating going AG. What was your first assignment that that you uh, were? I was at the 517th Personnel Service Company in the 3rd ACR. 
Fort Plus, Texas. Fort Plus. Okay, nice. Did, did you go to uh, Juarez and hang out in Mexico and that kind of stuff? And that kind of always. I have a yeah. massive love of tequila. Yeah. Yeah. And go ahead. Oh, go. I, uh, John Keenan was saying you could buy you could buy quarter shots of tequila, like 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 the like. What was did you get there? Where, was anybody going through OBC when you when you were there? Or were they already out of there? All those ADA guys were they all? Uh, all, all I think the only guy left was Chris Hartley because he had to he had to repeat OBC, <laughs> but um he was he was uh his such a great story. Like who who can love that man? He's one of the smartest men I know. Um, just evidently not a great test taker, but he, um, he, I think was the only one that was still there. Most everybody was gone by the time I got there. And then, um, but yeah, we would go over and I, I listened to that podcast. I did the same thing. We'd go right across the border. I'd leave my wedding ring at home. We'd go right across the border. We'd get cheap tequila. We'd go watch a bullfight. We'd buy something cheap or whatever and walk, but it was before NAFTA. So you could just walk back across the bridge and wow. they'd let you in, you know? So it's amazing to me to see like what's happened to the border just in, in our short lifetime. Um, but uh, you know, and every Monday I would go in a van down to the jail in Juarez and I'd pick up all the third ACR soldiers who got tossed in the can <laughs> over the weekend and bring now, them back. I remember Dave Reardon, um, he was stationed down there and I remember him saying that he had to buy the steering wheel lock for the, yeah. because your the cars would get stolen, they'd be able to take them across so quickly. And one of our classmates, I can't remember who it was, did have his car stolen. Yeah. And the drinking age on post was 18 because the drinking age in Mexico was 18 and they wanted to keep soldiers in the U S. So the wow. drinking age on post was 18. Yeah. It's holy moly. Yeah. The general, so yeah. General said we want, or whoever was the post commander just decreed we're going to make it 18. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah. Yeah. I loved, I, I loved and hated Fort Bliss. I mean, anybody who's been to Fort Bliss, it's not the garden spot of the world, but um, I did love my time there and the third ACR was such a great unit. So, exactly. and I honestly, they, they, they weren't allowing women in cavalry at the time. Yeah. Um, and so um, I remember Colonel Ivany, the 65th Colonel of the regiment oh, said, yeah. Ivany. Um, yeah. I, oh, it's amazing. And he said to me, he literally said to me, like, you know, if you're, as far as I'm concerned, you're with the 517th PSC, but you're every much a part of this, this regiment. So, right. I mean, I had spurs, like the whole thing, but there were a lot of cavalrymen, older cavalrymen who I'd go to Fort Hood or whatever for a class. And they'd be like, what are you doing? wearing wearing cross sabers. They're the ones, um, one, two, mm. one, twos. They were the ones and the twos, right? <laughs> yep. 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 So but then Colonel Avenue was great. Where did you go after that? Uh, so I did the advanced course early so I could get in line with Brett. The Army Married Couples program was very broken um, th at that time, and it was very hard to get us in sync. Um, so I went to the advanced course early, hoping to get us in sync. And then they said, you know, we're going to send Brett to Korea and we're going to send you to Syracuse. And we were like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So ultimately he went to Fort Knox. I went to Syracuse, but we ended up getting out of the Army because we just felt like we couldn't get it. To, like the army couldn't get us together. And then you know what it's like when you spend a lot of time apart and you're a young married couple. So we split, we still have, you know, we still, I think he's wonderful and he's gone on to live a wonderful life, but, um, and I wish him all the best, but, but we ended up splitting at that point. So, mm -hmm. but it was really, I, I 
you know, obviously I blame us, but like, I think the army married couples program uh, really could have done better for us at the time. It's such a tough thing, I think, for couples, you know, having to make decisions like like early or like or trying to like navigate like two careers and, and it's just it's it's tough. It's very demanding, I think, on a, on a, on yeah. a marriage, you know. Yeah, I all kudos go to folks who can keep it together, you know, like just between deployments and assignments and kids and all the other complicated things that life brings. Like um it's a challenge. And it's it's a challenge for everybody but it's an extraordinary challenge for army officers. Yeah. yeah. And then throw onto that, like the real complexity of going off to war, having yeah. to do all that stuff. So actually, when I was with Kenny Mintz, I was with Kenny, I was, this ceremony, Kenny was, you know, being uh, acknowledged for having done his walk across America, 10th Mountain Division, his former battalion, uh, you know, basically awarded the scholarship. And so in, um uh, in attendance was our classmate Greg Anderson's wife uh, Lou, yeah. and so we were just talking about their experience. You know the Mints and the and the Anderson family and the complexity of of all of that. And and she was talking about like the hardest thing for her was when when they're home, they're they're like you know and and Kenny and and um, Greg are off at war, and then people come back you know who are killed in action, and then the, the wives have to have to deal with that and and that was just like she said that was like the worst the worst of all things having to deal with that so yeah the challenges that our that our military families have gone through it's just incredible so and um and your challenges karen your sacrifice to our country working undercover in the fbi for two years i'm just in awe i'm in awe of you it's just unbelievable so are you allowed to tell us your name you probably can't yeah, yeah, it's in uh, court documents. It was Karen Wallace. Okay, okay. I, yeah. I would wondered if you just kind of went like crazy and said, "Oh, I'm Penelope" or something like that. No, it's um. So you know the old adage: the best lie is the one that's as close to the truth as possible. Yeah, probably. So yeah. I tried to keep my life as close to the truth as possible because you know I'm sure everybody has figured out at this point I am not splitting the atom. So you just got to keep it easy. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. So. Yeah. So, so Karen, as we work here towards the end of the podcast, I want to hand the mic back over to you. Like, what are your thoughts you want to leave us with or perspectives or advice for our classmates as we kind of traverse into the the back nine of our lives here? Yeah, thank you. I think um, I've thought a lot about this since we last talked, and I really would hope that everybody walks away from this podcast understanding just how grateful I am for everything in my life, for the academy, for you all, for the guppies, for the women, the swim team, the the whole thing at the academy, my experience in the army, my time in the bureau, um, even like my tweets at Twitter and, um, you know, hopefully at this new startup in, in uh, California. And I just, I, I feel so grateful for all the opportunities that the women who went before me that made that possible, you know, that before 1972, there weren't women in the FBI and, and women had to be turned away for, for decades before we finally allowed women in the bureau you know, the same way the class of 1980 broke that barrier for us. And, you know, I stand on their shoulders. I hope many, many, many women stand on mine. Um, I'm grateful. I am, you know, I am 
a 9-11 first responder. I have a squad full of, of teammates who suffer long-term illnesses. Um, I know we have guppies and definitely class of classmates who suffer long-term issues from TBIs and, and cancer and other issues. I just want you all to know I'm around. If you need me, all you have to do is call. And if you need me urgently, call me urgently. I'm around. I'm grateful to have been here. I'm grateful for my life. I'm grateful for all of you. And if you ever need me, all you need to do is call. Thank you so much for that. This has been awesome talking to you tonight. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm in, I'm just, you're, you're fantastic. And, you know, here's the, here's the kind of the, the Old Grab podcast is a labor of love. It's, it can be a pain in the ass a little bit. It's a little bit of work, but, you know, I do love it. But the other part of it that it's kind of, I get to feel so much closer to my classmates. Like Karen, I didn't know you really from Adam, like at the Academy, like now I feel like we've bonded, right? I'm so grateful for this time. I'm grateful for your service to our country. I'm grateful for your being a member of our class. It's it's just incredible. So thank you so much. Thank you everybody who's joined us tonight. Um, duty shall be done. And I'm gonna stop the live feed here and you guys can stay on the line and we'll we'll debrief. So thank you everybody for joining us. And we're and by the way, Karen has has also she had an intro song and she has an outro song, which I'm going to play on the uh, podcast <laughs> in the middle with you. Should we do a plug about the mini reunion? Oh, we can. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, mini reunion. It's up yeah. on Facebook. If you guys haven't seen it, I've been posting it. Mark and I are just trying to get a gauge of who wants to come. It's not binding, but we're going to try to block rooms this week and then start the planning based on the approximate numbers. So if you are interested, go to that Google sheet. You can see the other people that are interested. So please sign up. Going to Kentucky for our, oh, for our reunion. There's, and then there's hey, there he is. Uh, buddy. Exactly. All right. So that's April of 2024, right? Is yes. And it's, it's one of two weekends, depending on when the hotel is not booked. So hopefully we'll, we'll get, get it out this week. Okay, great. I'm going to stop the live feed. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Duty shall be done. Live feed is stopped. The, Karen, one question that came up, I was going to, it would have taken us down a different path, which was um, who, who, who should be the actress who plays you in your, um, in your, in your story? Like yes. In your... Oh, gosh, I don't even know who should be the actress. That would be a great think? common question, Jamie, to ask yeah. everybody. Yeah, but you know what, though, for someone like me who's so clueless, like if you gave me the name of a famous actress, I didn't know who they are. But you tell them beforehand. What's that? You tell them beforehand so then they'd have it prepped. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. They, they could ask their kids or ask their friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would just, on the spot, I would not, not know how to yeah. do it. Karen, I don't you're know. I, um, so awesome. You were so great. Thank you. Oh, you're so kind. Hey, just so you know, mine still says recording. Yeah, we're still recording, but we're offline. Okay. Okay, okay. So, I mean, if we say something cool, maybe I'll leave that in the in the podcast. Okay. If you say who your cool actor, I mean, I remember when I wrote to you and you were like, Holly, I don't, you know, what what am I going to say? I don't think I could do it. And I was telling JB, I said, no, Karen's got a pretty cool story. I said, I think she's going to be pretty good. But, you know, Bill, you set a very high standard for the rest of them, Karen. You're going to scare people off, I'm afraid. I think I'm, I'm oh. going to clarify. Not everybody gets to go undercover. and like, Undercover for 20 months. Oh, my God. Right. Here's the, yeah, but here's the beauty of it. Like, you don't have to be an undercover FBI agent to have a cool story. Everybody's got good stories, right? We're going we're gonna to get it out of you, you know? We're That's gonna... exactly right. And I also think, like, I, I mean, 
I think you guys are very generous to me. My story is not that cool. Like, like my family, can I tell you at the dinner table, my family, sometimes I'll say something or my niece will say something who she's like a little mini me. And um, everybody will be like, I can't believe you were an FBI agent. I can't believe you went to West Point. Like they, like my family still thinks I'm a total dope, which I am still a total dope. Right. But you know, I try really hard. You know what? I wanted to ask you this before and I, I I just, we got off into, to another subject, but when you're playing that role, like you're probably having to do things and say things that are just like completely outside of who you are, like who your yeah. character is. Yeah. You find yourself like saying those things and being like, oh my God, I can't believe those words just came out of my mouth. Like it must be like. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Yes. That is all very true. Like I can remember my first undercover um, was with the clan and I was a girlfriend of, of an undercover who was, uh, pretending to be a Klansman. And, um, the first thing I did was I walked in and I was really nice to the, to the mater D and, um, she was black. And my, I just remember my partner was like, you can't be nice to her. Mm. And I was like, Oh, right. Like, and we had practiced like all the words and the the lingo and the behaviors and the whole thing. But what we hadn't practiced was what my natural response is. And yeah. My natural response is if you're nice to me, I'm nice to you back. And I don't care about your race. Right. So, but that's Karen Walsh and I'm not Karen Walsh at that moment. So it really was, you know, and that's why you start slow, right? Because you can't, pretend to be somebody you're not, you just have to work into it. And then you have to kind of get into that mindset. So there is definitely, there is skill, but there's also art to that. And, um, well, it's acting. I mean, you could go into acting because all of the skills you learned are exactly what movie stars do. Except that like, I don't know, (laughs) I'm sure I would be a horrible actor, but I would, um, like, this is my response. Right. And I remember one of my friends, so I taught at the undercover school for, for years. And, um, as a matter of fact, the reason I went to Twitter was because one of the guys I taught undercover school with was the chief security officer at Twitter. And, um, he's not only a dear friend, but also someone I very much admire. And he was a mentor to me as a, as a undercover agent. And, um, you know, I, I can remember all of the undercover saying like, we'll work on it. Like we'll, we'll work through it. You know, like this, it doesn't come. It's, it's, you got to start slow and and you got to work your way into it. And there were times when, you know, I would work something super hateful and then I just wouldn't like my family would be having a function or whatever. And I just didn't go because I wasn't in the right mind for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like over time, it can really, it takes effect on folks' marriages. It takes effect on, uh, on their relationships, right? Like, I mean, look, I'm not saying that I would have had a relationship had I not been an, an FBI undercover, but like, I never got married again, right? After Brett, we, we split when I was 28 and, and I never got married. And I was just, I don't know, sometimes you get caught up in it and I'm going to do an undercover here and I'm going to do an undercover there. And then you kind of forget like, oh, I also should have first undercover um, was with the clan. And I was a girlfriend of, of an undercover who was uh, pretending to be a Klansman. And um, the first thing I did was I walked in and I was really nice to the, to the mater D and um, she was black and 
my, I just remember my partner was like, you can't be nice to her. Mm. And I was like, oh, right. Like, and we had practiced like all the words and the, the lingo and the behaviors and the whole thing. But what we hadn't practiced was what my natural response is. And yeah. My natural response is if you're nice to me, I'm nice to you back. And I don't care about your race. Right. So, but that's Karen Walsh and I'm not Karen Walsh at that moment. So it really was, you know, and that's why you start slow, right? Because you can't pretend to be somebody you're not, you just have to work into it. And then you have to kind of get into that mindset. So there is definitely, there is skill, but there's also art to that. And, um, well, it's acting. Yeah. I mean, you could go into acting because all of the skills you learned are exactly what movie stars do. Except that, like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure I would be a horrible actor, but I would um, like, this is my response. Right. And I remember one of my friends. So I taught at the undercover school for, for years. And um, as a matter of fact, the reason I went to Twitter was because one of the guys I taught undercover school with was the chief security officer at Twitter. And um, he's not only a dear friend, but also someone I very much admire. And he was a mentor to me as a, as a undercover agent. And, um, you know, I, I can remember all of the undercover saying like, we'll work on it. Like we'll, we'll work through it. You know, like this, it doesn't come it's, it's, you got to start slow and, and you got to work your way into it. And there were times when, you know, I would work something super hateful and then I just wouldn't like my family would be having a function or whatever. And I just didn't go because I wasn't in the right mind for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like over time, it can really, it takes effect on folks' marriages. It takes effect on, uh, on their relationships. Right. Like, I mean, look, I'm not saying that I would have had a relationship had I not been an, an FBI undercover, but like, I never got married again, right after Brett, we, we split when I was 28 and, and I never got married. And I was just, I don't know, sometimes you get caught up in it and I'm going to do an undercover here and I'm going to do an undercover there. And then you kind of yeah. forget like, oh, I also should have a social life and I should, you know, keep that. And, and people forget that too, when they're married, they're like, oh, my marriage is strong. It'll be fine. But then after 16 years of it, you know, the spouse is kind of fed up. Mm. Yeah. Because wow. I would, I would imagine that if you're doing it, like, like you were saying with something else you were doing, I mean, it's, it's not that it's, it's almost got to be a 24 hour thing, because if you, if you turn it on and off, that's when you're going to slip up and that's when it's not going to be effective. But sadly, I think that's what the Bureau wants is, you know, that's what the Bureau wants is for you to not live as someone else and for you to do it just part time. And it's very hard on the undercovers. Yeah. And we have, you know, look, Joe Pistone was was the, the pioneer of FBI undercovers. And he, um, you know, he... He, so he was Donnie Brasco, for those of you who don't remember mm -hmm. that, but um, Joe Pastrone, actually, little fact, his nephew, um, he, he took that name from his, his little nephew, who also became an FBI undercover. Mm -hmm. um, but he, uh, Joe Pistone, you know, part of the reason they started the safeguard unit, which is the psychological care for undercovers, is because he found himself, you know, um, like committing petty crimes and and starting to think you know, in ways that weren't healthy. And he, you know, he came back to the Bureau and kind of created this program. You know, he's, he's like a hero to undercovers because he created this program that cares for their mental health. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's called the safeguard unit. And it's, it's really, it it saved me. I I was in for at the, so they check you every six months. And at the 18 month mark, my psychologist said to me, I don't, I think you're fine and I'm not going to pull you, but I won't renew you again. So you, you know, and she was like, and here's what she said. If you were, if you're here, right? Like here's your baseline and we're starting to see you decline, but that's what a healthy person does. A healthy person declines once they're in an undercover for a long period of time, because I've given up my social life. I've given up my time with my family. I've given up my living where I want to live, hanging out with people I want to hang out with, right? I've given all that up. A healthy person gets sick of that after time. An unhealthy person is totally cool with it for two straight years, right? So she's like, it's a sign, your your decline is a sign that this needs to end because you're starting to become unhealthy. The good news is you're a healthy person because this is what healthy people do. Wow. And you went completely. So yours you didn't turn it off. You kind of went straight. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So you were living that person. Yep. Incredible. And then that safeguard unit was also the same unit that told me like, you need to take a break. And, and if you do a long-term undercover, you can go back to Quantico and recertify your FBI skills. Um, or you can, you know, take a portion of Quantico or whatever. Cause you know, you've been without handcuffs and a gun and yeah. And, all that stuff for a very long time. Um, and so she also said, um, you should take a significant break. And so I backpacked through Europe for five weeks after that. Again, I took my own annual leave because the bureau wasn't going to give me a day off, but, um, not that I'm not that I'm still bitter about it, but, uh, (laughs) I backpacked through Europe and I got to tell you, it was one of the best five weeks of my life was just to, to feel untethered. And, and when I came back, I was ready to go back to work. Like I was ready to, to go back to, to be an agent. So I gotta, I gotta run. Um, Thank you so much. This is awesome. I'm going to pull a couple clips of this after call and spice it into the other thing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And and we're going to have a, we got, we have to have a happy hour. Um, Yes. Let's do that. You know? Yep. Stuck in the middle with you